just me, not just the fact that they are provoking us. They are provoking us. But the whole world is on fire. The whole world doesn't know where to begin, where to end. Just wanted to let you guys know that after the show at at 10, um, I'm going to have like an hour with Bergie on stereo. Um, Because sometimes when we're on the phone, we're like, damn, wouldn't it be good if we just did our phone calls on stereo? But then we say things (laughs) that, you know, Uh, so we'll be we'll be on at 10 for about an hour just chit chatting um, uh, together. Um, 
guys, they're provoking you. And one thing that I haven't seen a lot of people talk about is what we need to talk about. Now, I thought, since all of you like to get your conspiracy theory fixes, right? Everybody loves a good conspiracy theory. Um, I thought that during the intermission, we can have, uh, you know, a good 10 minutes of showcasing a conspiracy theory without saying much. And then we'll revisit it at another time. How's that? I think that would be good. I think that would be very good. So let's do a little bit of round the world news before we get to uh, the topic that I want to talk about today, and that's um, terrorism. I think uh, we should take a look at what is happening in our nation and around the world. Uh, I think we should start with uh, just uh, there was a first arrest warrant for Texas Democrat lawmaker that was issued today. Uh, The Department of Justice actually declared that the vaccination mandates are legal. That is the most insane thing I have ever heard. As I've told you before, long, long time ago, the problem was never our legislative. It was never our White House. That could be taken care of. The problem was our judiciary arm. And this is where we're going to see it happen. It's on the Texas Democrats who fled their state over the voting bill. The first arrest warrant has been issued for one of the lawmakers. NTD's Allison Lee has the latest. Texas House Speaker Dade Phelan signed an arrest warrant for Democratic state lawmaker Philip Cortez on Sunday. Phelan directed the House Sergeant-at-Arms to take Cortez into custody and bring him, quote, before the bar of the House at once. House rules would then compel the Democratic lawmaker to attend the House session, but the Sergeant-at-Arms lacks jurisdiction outside the state. Cortez was among the 59 Democrats who fled Texas earlier this month. He returned briefly last week to discuss the voting bill with Republicans. His fellow Democrats in D.C. criticized him for this. But Cortez flew back to D.C. over the weekend, saying the talks have not produced progress. Phelan said that Cortez had irrevocably broken my trust and the trust of this chamber. Cortez promised his House colleagues that he would return. Instead, he fled the state. 57 Texas Democrats remain in D.C. Allison Lee, NTD News. Now, they remain in Washington, D.C. At this point, you know, if I was in Texas, I would be up in arms demanding that they be uh, abolished from their seat because they abandoned their post. There must be a law there. And I think that's what we need to do. So I'll have that little draft ready for all of us to send to our favorite attorney general. I think if he gets actual mail in his hand, he'll have to report on that. So um, he's been quite a proponent, and I'm pretty sure that, well, I can't talk about that right now, but I will. In other news, Friday, I will not be able to be somewhere where I can actually do my show, but I will um, attempt uh, that Saturday. I'm just letting you know. So I thought I'd throw that in there just for, for an FYI. Also another FYI, so weird. 
So you guys know that I'm in litigation and what concerns me is, is that I saw that there was an Ohio audit group uh, that was, um, that actually went on to Red State Radio, which I'm in litigation of. So if anyone is tied with Red State Talk Radio, they need to be not in my purview that can jeopardize my lawsuit. So I wanted to make sure I make you guys aware so there's no hard feelings when I say bye. Um, next, next topic. Here we go. Arizona senators issued new subpoenas to Maricopa County, demanding that more items be turned over to election auditors because the county is refusing to turn over some items previously demanded by the Senate. And lawmakers from more states are calling for audits similar to the one in Arizona. NTD's Don Ma has the story. Arizona State President Karen Fan and Senator Warren Peterson are demanding ballot envelopes, voter records and routers or router images from Maricopa County's Board of Supervisors. The board was also told to appear at the Arizona State Capitol for a hearing on August 2nd. A spokesman for the board says the county has already turned everything over that competent auditors would need to investigate the election. But officials previously refused to provide some items that were subpoenaed for the audit. The board says it will review the subpoenas with their legal team and respond in the coming days. The audit liaison, former Arizona Secretary of State Ken Bennett, says he might step down from the audit after being blocked from entering audit facilities last week. He says he was kept away because he shared data from the audit that got leaked to the press. Bennett says he apologized to Senate President Karen Fan and the Senate for revealing the information. Fan says Bennett is still a valuable asset to the audit and Bennett says he remains committed to it. Florida State Representative Anthony Sabatini wants a full forensic audit in five Florida counties. Sabatini, who announced plans to run for Congress, says the audits are to protect elections. Lawmakers in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Texas, and Wisconsin are now calling for their states to conduct forensic audits following the one in Arizona. Don Ma, NTD News. Well, all 50 states, man, because we've got elections coming up, which, by the way, I wanted to tell you. So... I got, obviously, letters from the RNC and the GOP asking me for money. Also, even got contacted from, like, the bigger GOP saying, Hey, Tori, you used to be a delegate. You're not a delegate. What are you doing? Like, huh? And I'm like, you know what? That's a really good question. Let me check out my county GOP, the only fucking blue county there is. And so this chick... Uh, runs the place. And I called her and she was like, oh, we met. You were part of the, like the, you know, some special team. <laughs> and I was like, damn, I didn't even remember her. Cause I was like, who are you? Yeah. I don't need to know you. She just smelled like a rhino. Um, when she was talking, she was asking questions that she wasn't privy to. So then uh, turns out she's the chair for the County. And I was like, so, you know, the only thing you have is pay me all this money and you get to do these things and there's no updates and nobody knows who is who. I don't even know who my district, region, whatever the hell you want to call it, chair is. I can't get in contact with anyone. And, you know, when we did run a candidate in Cleveland, you know, I reached out to the woman. She followed me back on Twitter because I had a lot of followers before I was purged. And I wanted to reach out with her to talk with her. And, uh, you know, she was too busy. I'm so sorry the candidate didn't. I, I, I don't care. She wasn't going to win anyway because she's not a real candidate. 
And then she told me how they're having this really great, you know, Lincoln dinner in Independence, Ohio. And I'm like, really? She's like, the star of the show is Marsha Blackburn. She's a, she's still part of the Trump campaign. I was like, the fuck she is. I was like, what? No, she's not. Well, I'm still in touch with like, you know, the Trumps and you are <laughs> shit. Tell me about it. So she was telling me all these things. She's like, well, you know, this is like my private number, but I'll reach out to the person, which I already have all their emails. Guess what? They still use fucking AOL. What? <laughs> what? So it's like, I was kind of like, what is going on here? Right? So, you know, I think we should just take over the Cuyahoga County GOP, just get rid of all of them. Because I asked her, you were elected last year. I didn't even know there were elections. It's not like you send any notifications. We didn't even know who the hell you were running. We had to Google that shit because nobody was aware of anything. And then you guys ran Gonzalez, the football player who decided to impeach Trump. And now you have a dinner, you know, that we're all supposed to be excited about with Marsha fucking Blackburn that backstabbed the president of the United States. Yeah, so... uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's really odd. So she was like, yeah, you know, well, I'll get back to you. (laughs) I think I'll be the one reaching out. Um, so I, I think my new, uh, you know, little local thing, uh, aside from the two, uh, litigation things that I'm doing that I can't talk about, um, will be to take over the Cuyahoga County GOP. I mean, I want to get everyone that's in Cuyahoga County, we're going to remove the shit out of them. There's there's bylaws, we need to read them, and we need to see how the hell we're going to get rid of each and every one of them and hold special elections. Because guess what? We're going to turn freaking Cleveland red, and we're going to run our own person, and we're going to step, put our foot down saying that there are no real elections. <laughs> Right. Because we still haven't figured out the 2020 elections. That's basically what the message should be. Every single Republican should be saying that. So I think that has to happen. So, you know, uh, this is this was, you know, (laughs) this was my morning um, because I was feeling really feisty, Mm, feisty, feisty elections, every single state, every single county, man. And if they only listened to little old me, who was not a title in Tierra, right, came in there telling them, hey, go grab machines from here, here, here. You'll get all the answers you want. Nope. They were too busy bidding for money. And this just in, Twitter appears to have suspended several accounts dedicated to 2020 election audits. When trying to access the Maricopa County audit, the audit war room, and other accounts dedicated to audits in Arizona, Wisconsin, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Georgia, Twitter wrote, account suspended. The Maricopa County audit account had nearly 100,000 followers, and the War Room account had over 40,000. And child sex trafficking continues to be an epidemic in the U.S. One organization in Texas is working with law enforcement to rescue children from sex trafficking. They say the crisis at the southern border has made matters worse. NTD's Jason Perry has more. Samuel Hall, the president of Patriots for America Militia, or PFA, says the CCP virus is not the only crisis we're facing. 
Another issue that's plaguing the U.S. is child sex trafficking. You know, when you're talking about a $65 billion a year industry, right, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and it's growing, right? And so it's a lot of uh, frustration for us because we can help, you know, rescue uh, or identify a child. But then there's four more that are waiting for us. And we just don't have enough members to go ahead and combat this. So we have to outsource to other militia, to other rescue organizations. And we build those partnerships so we can make a greater impact. But even with all that, we're not keeping up. He explains why child sex trafficking is so rampant and can go unchecked. When our undercover was in Allen. In, in, in that brothel uh, in Allen, Texas, it was about a month and a half later that the mayor per Tim was arrested on child pornography charges with attempt to distribute. And when people ask me, how are these places able to operate with such impunity? Well, who are the customers? It's the fucking mayors, the governors, the AGs, the secretary of states, your politicians. Who's the ones that are perpetuating it? Who are the ones that are covering for them? Who are the ones that are allowing them to keep operating with such impunity? It's the people that are in power. He says it's only gotten worse with the recent rise in illegal immigration. Dallas police estimate that approximately 400 underage girls are sex trafficked every night in the Texas city. Hall gave some stern advice for parents. One of the biggest things I think parents can do is get on their kids' phones and get rid of apps like Snapchat. Get rid of it because that's the number one app that traffickers use other than, you know, Facebook and social media, Instagram. But they use it all the time. They use it all the time. There was three girls in Fort Worth that were kidnapped. None of them knew each other. But the one thing they all three had in common was they all had Snapchat on their phones. They were all told to leave their phones at home and then they were lured away. He says part of the problem his organization is facing when the girls are rescued is that there aren't many places for them to go. And if they are handed back over to the state, it is likely that they will become victims of sex trafficking again. Hall said that if anyone wants to help the rescued children, they can donate to treasuredvesselsfoundation.org, which provides safe communities that restore survivors of sexual exploitation. Jason Perry, NTD News. Canadian border guards and customs officials are set to go on strike. They voted on the move today, which is just a few days before the U.S.-Canada border opens. Unions representing the workers said they've worked for three years without a contract and said the strike would slow down commercial traffic and have an impact on international mail as well as tax and duty collection. But Canada's border agency said 90% of the employees are considered essential. That means they would still have to work if they go through with the strike. A union president said they're grappling with widespread harassment issues. That's while the border agency expects the workers to continue doing their jobs as they have throughout the pandemic. An, an economist from China. So you believe that uh, the strike is totally organic, that um, it was something that they wanted? Do you believe that? Do you believe that they just now decided to halt traffic uh, from the U.S. and Canada because, you know, that's what they do? Do you believe that that's how it happened? Could it be that maybe it's something else? Maybe something like, let's cause some issues for the citizens. Let's slow down on the mail delivery, stuff like that, you know? Because everything's coordinated. Everyone's acting. It's all a big freaking show. 
It's all a big show. And that's what sucks. As you look ahead. That's what really, really sucks. The people don't see it's a freaking show. <laughs> it's a damn show. And it's a really bad shit show. Says he's learning more about his home country from a New York based Chinese dance company. He shares his experience seeing the performance, which seeks to revive China's traditional culture, even though it can't perform. Their traditional culture is to take over governments and make them their bitch. But okay, hold on. Let's find the next clip that I wanted to show you. Skimming through. Here we go. This is really interesting. 21 World Series stickball. They welcome anyone interested to join in their practice games in Keys Park, in Dallas. Just when you think travel is getting back to normal, think again. Some U.S. airlines may have to cancel flights or make extra rest stops because the industry is running low on jet fuel. NTD's Phil Zoe has the story. It looks like flying and leisure travel is back in full swing, but not so fast. Airline seats might be full, but the fuel tank, that's a different story supply shortage and we're dealing with trucking shortage so we've kind of had a perfect storm the problem can lead to airlines canceling flights or making extra stops on longer flights just to get fuel we are notifying the airlines we are notifying the the airports and you know keeping them informed as to how many how much fuel we have coming to them daily mark haynes has been selling a you know why because now they want to drive up the prices because they're broke okay it's not about anything. They don't have staff. So if they make it to be a fuel shortage, you can't complain, right? You can't complain. You can't blame it on the vaccine. You can't do anything like that. It's just simple. That's the way it's going to be. Uh, let's see. Do they have the next is all Chinese news too. I mean, it is Chinese owned. So this is interesting because now we're going to get into Europe. This is the aftermath of Tuesday's explosion at a garbage disposal system in Western Germany. A German newspaper reported that a tank that contained over 26,000 gallons of solvent exploded, which led to the outbursts of smoke. At the moment, we are focusing on securing the site, searching for the missing people and keeping the danger minimal. In the second phase, we will look into how this could have happened to ensure it doesn't happen again in the future. The explosion was so strong, its impact led to doors being slammed in nearby apartments. Over 30 people are injured, some of them seriously. According to reports, a second tank was also at the brink of exploding. The smoke was categorized as highly dangerous. Smoke detectors as far away as 15 miles were set off, and residents smelled the smoke in a city 30 miles away. It took firefighters around three hours to extinguish the fire. It's not clear yet whether the air contains dangerous chemicals. We are focused on the toxic cloud right now, trying to find out where it's falling and if it has caused any pollution. For now, residents are advised to keep their windows closed, not eat food from their gardens, and avoid touching anything that has grime on it. Arian Pastar, NTD News. Uh-huh. So, I just want you to know that um, that was solvent, and we're going to see a spike in people getting sick in that area. That's all I'm going to say on that for now. So now we're going to move on to something that we talked about uh, a couple years ago when I was 
uh, pointing out how the European Union wanted to ensure that they have their own army. And when I spoke about this and the EU army, I was uh, talking about how dangerous and difficult it is to actually get them to do that because you have different armies. Some of them use little knives. Some of them have mandatory service. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a very difficult thing to do. But guess what? The EU courts that are made up of people that are not elected, not elected, decided to make that decision for every state. Welcome to Communist Europe. Okay, Alexander, we have a European court decision, which is uh, saying that people in the army, people serving in the army, have to work a certain set of hours in a certain time period. And this is really uh, pissing off Emperor Macron and, uh, and the ruling class in France, if I'm not mistaken. What's, what's going on with this story? Well, it's, it's an absolutely bizarre story. And it, it also shows you, again, the extraordinary overreach of the European Court of Justice. Anyway, they've just given a ruling which is that the military within EU member states is subject to the working time directive. So that means that soldiers are not soldiers as such, they're employees, and they're therefore subject to individual timekeeping, severe limitations on night work, rigid activity planning, including prior agreement from each individual to any change, precise calculation of time off, mandatory 11-hour daily rest time. Now, that I can accept is perhaps something you might want to do in an office or a factory or whatever, but armies don't usually work like that. Armies are subjected to discipline, and they, of course, aren't really in a position to operate in that kind of way. And um, the court did accept that there are certain constraints, such as when the military finds itself in situations where it's conducting exercises, for example, and things of that kind, that at that point you know, there can be derogations from the working time directive. But in all other respects, military people are basically to be treated as employees, simple employees. Soldiers are to be treated as employees. Anyway, this has caused uproar in France. And I should say this arises from a French case. The Ministry of France for a defense has condemned it. And they said that they will go on and look for ways to keep up the fight in both in the domestic courts and at EU level. There's been a very strong article about this appearing in the French media, uh, written by Jean-Louis Borloo, who is a former finance minister under Nicolas Sarkozy, and who is, by the way, a staunch Europeanist and a member of the mainstream and I fully expect this to be a big issue in the forthcoming election. Is this all related to uh, to the desire to get some sort of EU army underway? Yeah. Yes, I think it is. I mean, this is all, again, part of the centralizing vision of the, of the EU. I think partly it's about a European army, but it's also about the European Court of Justice wanting to extend its reach into every area of life, even areas of public life. So if you think about 
um, you know, genuine militaries. And that France has a real military and one which is, um, you know, very much a powerful institution within France and one which, as we know, already has a difficult relationship with President Macron. They will see this as an attempt to undermine them by the European Court of Justice. In other words, to disrupt discipline, to mean that officers can't, you know, order their soldiers to do X, Y, Z, because if they do, they might find themselves up against uh, 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 courts because they would have breached the working time directive. So, I mean, think about that. Think about the bureaucracy this would cause. You'd have to sort of do all of the various steps and regulations you see in, in, um, you know, offices or other workplaces would be extended to an army. It's very difficult to see how discipline could function in this kind of situation. And I'm pretty sure the officers will feel that this is another attempt to undermine the French military. It's come from the European Court of Justice, whether they will see that as an attack on them by the Europeans. Who so I want you to remember yesterday, Patrick Henry's letter, which said, who do you think all these armies and navies are for? Who do you think they're for? Listen carefully to what they're saying. We're trying to sort of undermine the French military in order to create in, in its place a European military. I don't know. But I suspect that many, many French officers and many French soldiers will blame Macron for this. And they will say, you're always preaching more Europe. Look where that is getting us. Right. Uh, is the European court above the EU member states' own high courts? I mean, oh, absolutely. I, I can't understand which, which one's no, above no, the I other. Mean, no, the European Court of Justice is absolutely clear about this. Its decisions take precedence over those of domestic courts. So the highest court in France, according to the European Court, Court of Justice is subordinate to the European Court of Justice. So if the European Court of Justice decides to extend the working time directive to the French army, then if France is to remain a part of the European Union, then its domestic courts must implement this decision. That That is how EU law is structured. The European Court of Justice is supreme on any question of European law. Yeah, all the member states signed up to this when they became members. In yeah, other words, they, absolutely. they not only gave away their, their fiscal power, their monetary power by joining, say, the euro currency, the ones that did, but they also gave away their legal power as well. This was a sticking point for uh, the UK, if I remember correctly, as well. Absolutely. Now, can I just say, because that's a, you've actually touched on a very interesting point, because uh, there's not actually no treaty. None of the European treaties give the European Court of Justice this enormous degree of power that it has given itself. It assumed that power in a court decision it took in the 1960s. Just remember, this is how communism happens. They have a court that's higher than all their courts, and it is made up of judges that no one elects, no one knows, and they make the final decision on everything. It said we are the court of the European uh, community, as it then was, and what we decide on any question of European law 
is binding on all member states. So it's a power it gave itself as a result of a court decision. Um, remarkably, that court decision was then accepted. And of course, the commission in Brussels insists that it be implemented and followed by all member states. There's been occasions from time to time when individual countries seem to be prepared to rebel against it, but they've always been intimidated and by and deterred from doing so. But you're absolutely right. For the British, it was a sticking point. They said we are not prepared to allow our laws, our domestic laws, to be governed for us by a foreign court. Yeah, well, now they're dictating how militaries should uh, yeah. should act or, in member states. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, it, it's, or, once or, again, it's just getting out of control. Absolutely. Organize their own affairs. I mean, bear in mind, I mean, there's always been a tradition that there's military law, which to which armies are subject, are subject uh, and which take into account discipline. And there's civilian law, which applies to everyone else. Well, what the European Court of Justice says is you apply civilian law to the military and we decide what that civilian law is on the basis of the working time directive. So they are extending their reach to cover the military as well. And not just, of course, in France, because this decision is binding on all member states. So it applies to the German military, it applies to the Greek military, it applies to the Cypriot military, it applies to the Italian military, it applies to the militaries of all EU countries. And how is this, how is this coordinated with NATO? Because when you talk about the, the militaries of some European countries, I mean, they're, they're pretty much non-existent. I mean, they're not, they're not going to stop any, uh, any competent large armies or, or, or militaries, aggressive militaries from uh, doing what they want to do. It's NATO, essentially, that provides the, the military cover for the European Union. Yeah. How is all of this connected to NATO? Well, I mean, you can see the same philosophy is now being applied to the most important military in NATO of all by far, which is the U.S. military. <laughs> you have uh, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff going along to uh, Congress and telling Congress that, you know, it's all these things, all these all these uh, concerns, all these identity issues are now the major priority for the American military also. Now, I would stress they haven't gone so far yet as to say that, you know, civilian law applies to the U.S. military. But if you take one theory, then you could, well, if you, you know, take one issue, like what General Miller said, well, you can apply to everything else, seems to me. So uh, we're going to see across the West. It, it, I, I mean, this is inevitable. I can't see how this can be avoided. A steep decline in military discipline. And bear in mind that you know many one reason why many young men especially but also some you know young women join the military is precisely because they see it as a different class with a particular esprit a, a, a force that serves the nation they have a you know they have a particular connection to the military which is different from what you would find that any civilian employee has for any civilian company, because the military have always been acknowledged to be a class apart, but not in the opinion of the European Court of Justice and not in the opinion of General Miller. Um, the Chinese and the Russians must be laughing. 
Yeah, that's that's the point that, that I want to make now. Is it fair to say that the West has just decided that the military's purpose is not to protect the country anymore or to go fight wars, to kill people? That's what a military yeah. is there to do. They're trained to, to kill. They're trained well, to I, defend, to kill, um, to yeah. protect these things. Yeah. Is it fair to say that the West has kind of said, you know what, let's just turn the military into another bloated institution you know, just well, like exactly. say the the Fed, uh, the the health ministry, the finance ministry, the EU, and, and all of the Brussels stuff. Let's just it, let's just turn it into another bloated institution where we can uh, suck on the of taxpayers, drain their money, um, enrich ourselves, and let's turn it into 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 another an, another elitist institution who cares about protecting and serving uh, the countries because today we have drones and we have unmanned. um... Because today we have people that will lock themselves in their house because we said so that will take experimental vaccines, even though they're experimental, even though for the past four decades, (laughs) they've been telling us don't take experimental drugs. Now they're trying to coerce you to Take experimental drugs. And if you won't be coerced, then they're just going to force you. Hmm. Sounds super, super legit, right? Super legit. I mean, how is it not legit <laughs> to want to force people to take experimental vaccines because you said so? Now, so you know, the European Union is one in the same with the UN. In fact, the European Union's High Court and the European Council, they actually have their headquarters in Kazakhstan. So weird. I've said this years ago on the radio here, talking to you, making you aware of all these things, because it's really important that you knew about it then. So when it comes around, you can identify it. It is not going to get better. It's going to get way, way worse way worse way worse and remember when um joe biden ran remember what he said about china let's let's remind ourselves what he said about china okay china is going to eat our lunch come on man we want to see china rise it is in our self-interest that china continue to prosper they're not bad folks folks but guess what they're not a they're, they're not they're competition for us. A rising China can be a significant asset for the region and the world, and selfishly for the United States. We want China to grow. What are we What are we worried about? As you look ahead to the next four years, if you're re-elected, what's going to be your overall? attitude towards China. Okay, well look back for the last three and a half years. I'm the only one that ever took on China. And you saw the intelligence reports where they say China is working hard to get Joe Biden elected. If he gets elected, China will own our country. I've taken billions and billions, tens of billions of dollars in taxes out of China. I gave them to our farmers because they targeted wrongly our farmers. They thought that would put pressure on me. They could get whatever they wanted. So they target us and it's no good. So if you look at um, what we've done with China, nobody's ever done to China. Are you going to be tougher in the next four years with China? A lot of people, I've I've been one of them, said, you know, why do we 
Why are we there at all? Why don't we disengage? Why don't we bring decouple? The, exactly. What do you so look, I don't want to set the world on fire right now on your wonderful show, which I watch all the time. Okay. But I made a great deal with China. You see that they're buying billions and billions of dollars of, you know, manufactured goods, but also our farmers more than they've ever done. But with all of that being said, it's no longer the same to me. It's no longer the same. There's been no country that's ripped us off more than China. And by the way, the European Union is no beauty either. Okay, they treat us terribly too. But there's been no country that has ripped us off like China for many, many years, for decades, where we'd lose anywhere from 200 billion to 500 billion, with a B, billion dollars a year. We rebuilt China. I give them all the credit because they were smarter than our presidents and smarter than our representatives, but I've stopped it. Now, she, I don't know, she's just a clone for, all she is is an automatic vote. Debbie Stabenow, she's been a disaster for Michigan. She's an automatic vote for Schumer. He said clone, listen to it again, listen to it again. Now, she, I don't know, she's just a clone for, all she is is an automatic vote. Debbie Stabenow, she's been a disaster for Michigan. She's an automatic vote for Schumer. Now, it's really important for us to kind of really let the next half of the show percolate. So we're going to have an extended intermission right now, and I'm going to show you about a topic that (laughs) I'm smiling just talking about it that we can't talk about right now because we're busy. All right. But we will. And I just want you to think of this location when um, you're going to be watching it. So we're going to introduce this guy named Lorden Arts. Uh, He deep dives into topics um, and he only shares the information he found, he finds and puts it together. And so um, you're going to hear him talk about this brain scratch that he's had. And extremely little physical evidence to look at to say, well, this person is more correct than that person. This person has better experience than that person. This case is right up that alley. Um, This is probably one of the toughest to research that I've done to date, because quite honestly, even as I sit here and turn on the camera in front of all of you, I don't know the story. (laughs) And I'm going to share with you guys the information I do have, but the core thread of this story has just been so mangled and it's all over the place. Now, admittedly, this is an older story. Today, we are looking into the case of Val Valiant Thor. And this is a story that takes place in the 1950s. There was a book written by it. There's been a couple of people that have spoken about this person, Valiant Thor. Um, I guess the best way to do it is just to jump into it. So let's start from the beginning. Valiant Thor is apparently an alien from Venus, a Venusian, I believe it is claimed, that came here to Earth on his ship, the Victor One. Now, first of all, before we even continue from there, I just have to say... This guy's name is Valiant Thor. He's riding around in a ship called the Victor One. I mean, does it strike anyone else that this sounds like it could be a plot for a radio show in the 1940s or maybe one of those early sci-fi shows in the 1950s? Um, I don't know. It just it really hits me very odd, just even from the outset of looking into this. 
but I promise you guys, I went in with an open mind um, and tried to find as much info as I could. So let's take a look at one of the first real problems that this story has. Here is a picture of Valiant Thor on the right here. This is supposedly um, his brother named Don, and this is Jill, and they also came on the Victor One with Valiant Thor to the Earth. And as a matter of fact, there is another person that was supposedly with them um, that also came along for this ride. But if we look at this picture here, I know that one's kind of small. Let me pull up a bigger one for you guys. Here we go. This picture is supposedly also Valiant Thor. And if we look at this guy, uh, it looks like he has either gray or possibly blonde hair. It's kind of hard to tell in a black and white photo. Very strong uh, jawline. This guy does not look the same to me as this other version of Valiant Thor. Um, this guy here. Not anywhere near the same. And according to different experts that you will look into, if, if you choose to look into this case, you will hear, yes, this is Valiant Thor. Yes, this is Valiant Thor. Here we can see there's several other pictures of this version of Valiant Thor. And quite honestly, I think I've only seen this one photo for this version of Valiant Thor. Now, what's interesting about this version of him is this person sitting uh, right kind of behind him. This is Oscar Schneider. And I actually have a little bit. Here's a couple of pictures of Oscar Schneider. We know this is a real person. He is the father of the late Phil Schneider. Now, if you watched one of my earlier brain scratches on the mysteries of the Denver airport, um, there's some talk about Phil Schneider in that video. He is a person that claims to have had you know, top secret clearance, worked on deep underground military bases. He insisted that there was tunnels connecting all of the U.S. Uh, underground so that you can get literally from California to New York within a matter of an hour or something like that. Um, pretty controversial stuff, de definitely in the conspiracy theory type vein. But his father was definitely a serviceman, and that is indeed uh, his father that is sitting behind Valiant Thor, at least in this picture. Now, this is part of where I think um, this story kind of became broken. The true, the person that I consider the true expert of this Val, Valiant Thor, I don't even know what to call it, uh, except uh, story, is an author named Dr. Frank Stranges. And the name of the book is Stranger at the Pentagon, first published in 1967. And that is essentially the story of Valiant Thor, Let's jump down so you can get a bit more insight into what that story entails. Uh, on March 16th, 1957, in Alexandria, Virginia, Val, he goes by Val, Val's ship, the Victor One, landed, and he and his crew of three, Jill, Don, and Tanya, were greeted by two police officers. And after some quick thought transference, had them call their superior officer, who called the Pentagon, and a meeting was arranged with Neil H. McElroy, the Secretary of Defense. Once McElroy confirmed the veracity of Val's claims, he was ushered through an underground tunnel to the White House where he met with President Dwight D. Eisenhower and Vice President Richard Nixon. Now, what did he meet with them about? 
Well, according to Dr. Stranges, he had brought plans to help solve pretty much all the major problems of Earth. Um, apparently, Venus was worried that we were going to kill ourselves with our nuclear technology. Uh, he also brought plans that would end poverty and hunger and would even allow us to live forever, apparently. Um, at least, now that's Dr. Frank Strangis's version. Uh, also worth noting, the only physical change that Dr. Strangis talked about in terms of Val being an alien was he noticed when he shook his hand, yes, Dr. Strangis got to meet him eventually, we'll get to that. He noticed when he shook Val's hand that he didn't have any fingerprints, that it was just perfectly smooth uh, on, the, on the tips of his fingers. Outside of that, apparently Val did not have a belly button. Now, Dr. Strangis was also uh, a minister. Um, he did a lot of evangelical work. And I've watched a presentation that he gave. Uh, he has now passed away. He died, I think, in 2008, if I recall correctly. But he was basically hitting the UFO circuit, doing presentations about Val, about this whole story, um, about him meeting Val. Uh, I guess we can get into that here. So he met Val when he was doing one of these talks uh, about Val. He had a picture of him, and he started, apparently, out of his own uh, church, he started holding meetings about this traveler from Venus that came to Earth and was living at the Pentagon for three years. Uh, he was at one of those meetings, or a book signing, if I recall correctly, where someone came up to him and said, do you want to meet this guy that you're talking about? and she worked at the Pentagon. Her, apparently her name was Nancy Warren. I tried to do some investigating to see if I could dig out that identity as being a real person as you know, if she was working at the Pentagon around that time. Of course, those records are very tough to get information that is now you know, 50 years old. And even if it was modern, I don't know that it'd be all that easy to get information about employees working at the Pentagon unless they happen to have a LinkedIn profile or something like that. Uh, I couldn't find anything to say that Nancy Warren did exist at that time. But the story, as Dr. Stranges gives it, is Nancy took him to the Pentagon, slipped him through security with a, a bit that, quite honestly, sounds like it's something from a, a Three Stooges film or something like that. She told him, as they would approach security, that she, she had a jacket on and her badge was under her jacket, and she would lift the edge of her jacket to show her badge, and security would just wave her through. She told Dr. Stranges, just do everything that I do and you'll get right through. He did not have a security badge. He had no clearance to be there. Apparently, he walked right behind her, opened up his jacket like he had a badge there, closed it, and they just waved him through. A bit unbelievable? Yes. To me, yes. And it also points towards the types of stories that you hear from Dr. Stranges when he talks about this whole thing. You know, if something... I know this is intermission and we're supposed to listen, but guys, that shit legit happens everywhere. I mean, if you're with a group of people and you're talking and they see the one person's badge... You're good. Something fantastic was happening to me that I thought people were going to have trouble in believing. I would be trying to remember and recite elements of that story that would help prove my case. You know, I remember exactly what uh, the person looked like that was sitting behind the desk. Here, here's a picture of them from another website. You can see, yes, they work at the Pentagon. I mean, I would do something to try to substantiate my story. 
telling these kind of whimsical, so yeah, I slipped through the security at uh, the Pentagon, it just went like this. And not only did it work at one security checkpoint, there was two security checkpoints before he got in to meet with Val. And then there was two more on the way out. And he insists that it worked every single time. He would just lift up his jacket, show them no badge of any kind, and they would let him through. Really, really kind of tough to believe in. And if you do watch one of his whole presentations, I'm going to have a bunch of links down below. Um, one of them is an entire presentation of his. You will see that First of all, he's a very good speaker. You can tell that he did a lot of work within church in terms of his speaking style. As a matter of fact, during these kind of UFO conferences, he is even conducting prayers for the entire crowd, uh, helping to promise them financial gains, some, some kind of odd things in terms of what they're praying for, but he is conducting full-on prayers. Um, his speaking style is... I almost felt in a weird like I was in a weird way like I was watching someone that was starting stand-up comedy or something like that. He just he talks about things that are just completely unrelated to the fantastic parts of his story. And then when he does get to the fantastic parts of his story, they turn into these kind of whimsical, jokey type things. It's really, really tough to to buy into. Um, so essentially he meets Val in this office. Val shakes his hand, already knows his name. That surprises him. And they develop this kind of friendship and he goes on to meet Val several more times. Um, Val takes him to his ship, the Victor One, which when you look at this story logically, even the part that I read to you about the police uh, finding Val, you have a spaceship somewhere sitting in Virginia, apparently. Uh, no one seems to notice that the spaceship is there. Yes, perhaps it had a cloaking device of some kind. Uh, according to what Dr. Strange has said, that ship at one point was in orbit around Earth at 100 miles. And most recently, it apparently is sitting at Lake Mead uh, near Las Vegas. But you probably wouldn't be able to see it because it has a force field. Um, you wouldn't notice that there was any indentation where it was because it's on a bed of rocks. He said, the only way that you might notice it is if you saw all the dead insects around the force field, but with the wind out there and, and point at Lake Mead, it would just blow those insects away. So you probably wouldn't even be able to verify it there. And Val lives until approximately the age of 490. So that is kind of Dr. Strangest's version of Val. You then have the Phil Schneider version, which is considerably different, not just that the pictures are different. Let's just say there were four people according to this story, right? This is totally intermission, hiatus from the news, because I'm going to come with stuff that's really going to piss you off. So I thought maybe we could have a little bit of, um, you know, dabble into the fun stuff. So there were, there were four people, only three were supposedly photographed. Tanya, she seems to be missing from the photo. So weird. Um, Phil Schneider goes into Val's physiology much more in depth. Apparently, uh, Val has an enlarged heart. He only has one lung. There is more brain capacity. His IQ is somewhere around what would be registered to us as about 1,200. Phil also does not describe 
how he really got any of this information, how he substantiated any of this information. But he does show that cool picture with his daddy sitting behind Val. And the biggest thing, Phil says that Val has six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Now, in Phil's version of the pictures, you can't really see Val's hand. Let's jump back to that real quick. Here's a decent size of it. Um, you can see his hands, but the way that they're turned, you certainly would not be able to notice if, if there was a sixth finger on each hand. However, in Dr. Strangest's version of Val, we have enough pictures that, yeah, you can certainly see his hand, and that is a regular human hand, five fingers. Uh, also, when Dr. Strangest speaks about meeting Val, he never mentions there being six fingers. So if nothing else, one thing I did learn today, <laughs> one of these guys is telling a story. <laughs> Both of them might be telling a story, but certainly one of them is making up facts because the other one is not supporting that information. If I learned nothing else, I at least... So we'll continue with the rest of it now, or do you want to you go now? You want to watch the rest of this video together? Okay, now, but uh, for all of you that are watching, I want you to, as you listen to this story, I want you to think, oh, I do really miss uh, a place that I used to call home. It was, this, this was where I would talk with most of my um, colleagues right here. All right, let's continue it then. At least learned that. Uh, is it Phil making up the story? It's kind of strange. I have a feeling that it's possible that Phil read Dr. Strangest's book about Val and then somehow adopted some of those events onto himself and then grabbed this picture of his father being somewhere and kind of made up this thing that, hey, there's Val sitting right in front of my dad. Um, I think that might explain why we have two different physical. Well, let me just say something. When you don't want people to know the truth, what you do is you make stories around the truth. This is how myths happen and legends, and they never tell you the real truth. It's kind of like the there was a flip, <laughs> right? It was a story. They made up all these stupid stories, and everyone thought there was a flip, that the Republicans were the racist, not the Democrats. You know, they make up stories when they want you to not look at something vowels and we have different physical characteristics being described between the two as well. Now on top of that, and this might point a little bit towards Val being created by Dr. Stranges, we know that uh, he is a minister. We know that he likes to do uh, evangelizing. I hope that's the right word. Uh, here we get a note about Jesus Christ and essentially uh, Val says that the Bible exists in all life-supporting planets, be it on book form or as a thought pattern. Now, it's been a while. Um, just for fair disclosure, I did go to Sunday school. I did uh, have my time studying the Bible. Um, I don't know, when you consider what Dr. Stranges says about Venus, uh, which he insists that Val lived under the 
uh, crust of Venus, that basically no one lives on the outer side of Venus. Everyone lives under the crust of it. Um, the stories in the Bible, uh, I think they're, they're pretty locked to Earth. Um, maybe they have been regionalized. I mean, I know that's something that, uh, you know, modern storytellers do pretty regularly. They regionalize their stories from one place to the other. Just once again, I get this very strange feeling that that is a very convenient description. Oh, no one lives on the surface of Venus. Everyone lives under the surface. So that's why we haven't been able to see them with any type of technology or telescopes or anything along those lines. Um, I don't know, just the, the conveniences that stack up on this story really kind of weigh on me. The thing that sucks, guys, is I want to believe someone out there. That's why I keep doing these episodes. That's why I look into, admitted, admittedly, this is a bit of a classic story. This story kind of even predates um, what we know as modern UFO abduction theories. This is not an abduction. This is a friendship being struck up by uh, Dr. Strangis and this guy, this alien, Val. Um, so it's, it's really tough. It kind of... I'll tell you guys, it, it just, it doesn't feel great to me when I look into this stuff and the stories just don't add up. The information is all over the place. I can tell you, even of the basic story that I kind of gave you guys, I've seen so many different variations on that. That is just kind of the most simple and clean one. And that came from basically a, a skeptics website that's trying to review this case. And they had at least something that was cohesive that at least all these different variations of the story had a little thread of, oh, this same thing seems to happen in all of them. It is mind boggling. I'm telling you guys, if you want a rabbit hole that has no bottom, this is the topic. At ancientufo.org, they have a very appropriate title, The Unbelievable Story of Valiant Thor. According to Dr. Strange's, Thor was about six feet tall and 185 pounds with brown wavy hair and brown eyes. Valiant Thor remained in the United States for three years. According to the book, he had been sent to Earth by the High Council to intervene on behalf of the intergalactic community. They were worried with our nuclear capabilities and how nuclear warfare could lead to the obliteration of the human race. What's interesting here is this article goes on to say that Dr. Stranges actually had top security clearance with the Pentagon, uh, according to a story I heard oh, directly shit. from Dr. Stranges. Tanya. That is not true. Oh, shit. Did you guys see? <laughs> Did you guys see Tanya? No. Okay. Pentagon, uh, according to a story I heard directly from Dr. Stranges, that is not true. His clearance came from opening his jacket and faking that he had a badge. So once again, <laughs> I'm telling you guys, every source I look at is different on this. It's so weird. One of the things I noticed about uh, Dr. Strangers' presentation was he was building up this story about when he eventually got to go on the spaceship Victor One. And after leading the audience through this buildup about him being able to do that, what does he talk about experiencing when he gets on the Victor one? Potty problems. Yeah. Apparently the first room he goes into on the Victor one is a bathroom. He uses the bathroom and then notices there's no toilet paper. Now, luckily, um, one of the people, I don't know if it was 
uh, I don't think it was Don. I think it was one of the two lady names. Uh, one of the, one of them apparently sent him a psychic message to look at the buttons to his right. There are three buttons. And then he presses the first button and it hits his bottom with such an intense burst of air that it almost knocks him through the ceiling. And then he hits the second and the third button. Basically, he's talking about a space bidet. And that is, I mean... Okay, guys, we're going to talk about bidets. That's so weird. <laughs> we're going to talk about bidets with Bergie. Um <laughs> I can't believe this. This is going to be so much fun. This intermission is actually going to bleed through uh, uh, <laughs> on bidet talk. Of the stories you're going to tell of the first time getting on a spaceship, really? The space bidet? <laughs> My mind was just kind of blown. Quite honestly, his lecture might be super, super entertaining if it wasn't so filled with just this kind of nonsensical fluff around getting to these stories. Um, I did find an example of another one of these stories. Uh, and once again, this is coming from an article that is trying to support this man, but th these are the kind of stories that you're going to hear from him if you look into it. Dr. Frank told me once he was picked up at a hotel in Vegas and some government agents were following him and Vice Commander Teal when she said, watch this. They were driving in Victor One's water-powered car. Now, let me just stop there for a second. They're driving around in technology from another civilization, and no one's noticing, hey, there's a space car that runs on water that's driving around Las Vegas. Anyway, they were driving. No one noticed that they were undergoing communism. We don't notice a lot of things. Living in Victor One's water-powered car, and they turned into a cul-de-sac, and she pushed an invisibility button as they went around a corner, and they both did laugh and enjoy the agent's shocked face as he realized they had just disappeared. These are the types of stories. Um, another story he told was about the type of clothes that Val, Val had this kind of suit apparently um, that he showed Dr. Strangis when he was at the Pentagon. And then he showed him another version of it when Dr. Strangis visited the Victor one. And it had a magical zipper. That's as good as I could describe it. He said that you would just wave your hand in front of where it was open and the fabric would seam together and you couldn't even tell that it was separated. It was like it would fuse together. And by the way, this magical outfit, um, I believe was bulletproof. They tried to shoot a laser at it and it didn't heat up. Um, just a wonderful magical outfit. So weird. We have magical outfits like that um, currently being looked at. Um in it just makes me certain labs of the military i wonder before the internet before we all had access to a shared pool of information which admittedly is not a hundred percent true obviously um but it is there is a consensus that you can kind of get from that pool of information if you look at enough different sources um before that occurred it seems to me like it was really easy to be this type of storyteller, to just take a picture of someone. How would they know? These guys that are showing up in these pictures as Val, um, by this age, they're probably most certainly deceased. Uh, is there family members of- How are they deceased if they can live forever? 
theirs out there that we should expect would have seen some of these pictures and come forward and said, hey, hey, that's no alien. That's my uncle. He, Yeah, he worked at the Pentagon. Or, yeah, this person was at that base. Um, I don't know if we could really expect that. I think the way these pictures have circulated, with there being so few of them, with it, them being primarily shown at meetings, um, which, yeah, admittedly now you can go on YouTube and you can see some of these meetings, but back at the time, you saw these pictures for a few seconds in person, and then that was it. You really didn't have any way to further scrutinize or analyze those pictures. Um, you know, if back at the time, if someone really wanted to try to dig in there, it would have been great if they would have taken one of those photos, gone to these locations where these people were seen, you know, asked people at the Pentagon, hey, do you recognize this guy that's in this photo? He keeps popping up in these photos. Do you know who this is? But unfortunately, trying to do that 50 years after the fact, Obviously, that's not going to pan out. Um, it's just, it really boggles my mind. But I do think that at that time, you could do this and make a career out of it. And Dr. Stranges did seem to do that. Now, if all this wasn't already fantastic enough, Val also wrote a book. Now, the strange thing about it, it's called Outwitting Tomorrow. And you can find several areas where it was uh, noted as being written by Valiant Thor. Um, this information about it being published in 1939 is obviously not true. Even if you believe the story, Valiant Thor was not here until 1957, lived at the Pentagon until about 1960, and I guess he's been at Lake Mead. So, I mean, I guess that means that he didn't come in the 30s and then come back in the 50s and then maybe come back later and maybe come back later. It's just one continuous thing. Okay. Uh, ever since. Here, there is a, a section at Goodreads about it, and they say it's a book by Frank E. Stranges. Um, I haven't read it, obviously, myself. I did read a couple of reviews about it. It seems like it is a bit of a self-help book. Here at NICUFO.org, we get a little bit of a, once again, different story than I've heard before <laughs> about where this book came from. Uh, here, it says, this book has been carefully written in simple terms by Dr. Frank E. Stranges with the advice of a starship commander, Valiant Thor, an immortal angel living among us today. This book contains definitive instructions regarding specific subjects directly related to universal law, resulting in immediate positive results for the protection, health, prosperity, and well-being of those willing to apply them. But then down here, what does it say? Outwitting Tomorrow, three, only 64 pages, but that'll cost you 11 bucks plus shipping and handling. Um, I don't know, guys. Uh, another moment that kind of struck me odd in the presentation I watched from Dr. Strange's is he talked about there being a screen. I'm pretty sure somebody's going to find it as a PDF and share it on Telegram, right? Screenplay, which has been written for it. Uh, you'll find a link down below to the guy that wrote the screenplay. He has a video that he's also posted about this subject. And Dr. Strange's gets really excited about, hey, we're going to go into production next year. And guess who the lead's going to be? John Travolta. I don't know, guys. It just feels really, really flimsy to me. I like, I like this guy. All right, enough of intermission. I like this guy. I mean, he's being legit to himself. He's confused. He doesn't know what he's looking at. Again, you obfuscate, obfuscate. But it all starts with home. <laughs> so um, that was an interesting story. Very fascinating. Very fascinating. Very fascinating. 
Um, but I did want to mention that military photo with that other person allegedly being Thor had six fingers. One key thing that all clones have clones and there are clones, <laughs> there are, is that they are, uh, when they're replicated, they're most likely uh, to have polydactyly. Um, so it's very important that I point that out. And not all people that are cloned don't have a belly button. That's weird. I mean, I don't have one, right? Doesn't mean that I'm a clone. I'm just saying. I literally don't have, I have a fake one. Seriously. Um, all right. So <laughs> that was like TMI right there, but it's the truth. All right. So before we start, let's play some nice wicked tunes and get the rest of the show going. is settling around our feet like the ash in the fire are you questioning what's beneath when you take out desire my mistakes getting harder to shake wide awake cause the demon Dancing at night Shadows Wherever I go Used to fear the dark But now it's all I know Shadows From where do you go From where do you go I'm in the shade Dang Dang, right? That was a great rendition of the, of the song Shadows. And all of us have been in the shadow of fake news constantly. And it's quite troubling. It's quite, quite troubling. So I think we're going to go back in time first so we can understand a few things uh, before we get into 2021. We should go back in time and see what we're talking about really means. Because it's quite fascinating what is happening, the way that they are provoking you, the way that they are hoping that you uprise and take arms. I mean, if they want it so bad, damn. And like he said, oh, it's going to be a cyber. No, it's not. The time for peaceful revolution is over as long as you keep provoking. So let's, let's go back to 2011, if I'm not mistaken. This is from PBS in 2011. Take a listen. Another story from our Economist Film Project series. Tonight, a film about eco-terrorism. The Earth Liberation Front, a radical environmental activist group, was named a domestic terrorist threat by the FBI in 2001. In this documentary, Academy Award-winning filmmaker Marshall Curry follows the story of a former ELF member, Daniel McGowan. McGowan was arrested in 2005 for involvement in several fires and placed under house arrest in New York City to await trial. Here's an excerpt from the film, If a Tree Falls.
In Vail, Colorado, the nation's busiest ski resort was hit today by a fire. Arson is suspected. You may have heard of the Earth Liberation Front. The Attorney General himself says it's a domestic terrorist organization. The FBI says it is one of the most dangerous groups in the country. The ELF has claimed responsibility for more than two dozen major acts of eco-terrorism since 1996. Fire bombings include attacks on lumber mills, wild horse corrals, and two meatpacking plants. So far, not one of the cases has ever been solved. And authorities acknowledge they know next to nothing about the membership or the leadership of the organization. What if I told you someone that was a member of it is now a Biden administration nominee? In 2001, I was involved uh, with the Earth Liberation Front, and I was involved in two separate arsons in one year. There was no one in any of these facilities. Wow. Look at where he lives in New York. And yet I'm facing life plus 335 years. I was born in 1974 in Brooklyn. I moved to Rockaway when I was around three, Rockaway Beach in Queens. It's like mostly, you know, working class people. My dad was a cop in the New York Police Department. And I was a track runner and, you know, I got scholarships and stuff like that. And then when I got to college, I was like, oh, I guess I'll major in business because that's practical. I moved to Mount West in October of 98. And I started becoming a really different person. I had never seen trees like that before. It, it had a really profound impact on me. I have memories of like, like for the first time seeing log trucks, you know, and be like, whoa. You saw the mills. Or you go into the forest and you stumble upon a clear cut. Like it just blew me away. I couldn't believe the fact that people accepted what was going on. Just the, the arrogance of it. You know, it made me think like, why are we being so gentle? Why are we so gentle in our activism when this is what's happening, you know? Sometimes when you see things you love being destroyed, you just want to destroy those things. The more radical environmental community have, a, in my opinion, a misconception about this industry and, and what we do. Does it have an impact? Certainly. Nobody likes the looks of a fresh harvest, but we really do regrow these trees. You know, I'm a third generation lumberman. You can't be in the lumber industry without having trees to cut. Uh, so it's ridiculous for people to think we're going to go out there and cut the last tree. We were quite surprised that, that we had been targeted. I went up to Portland and wrote the communique and sent it in. Even then, it wasn't real. It was just like still like kind of this cartoonish thing. And uh, it wasn't real until I really saw the newspapers, seeing the man from the company, I think Steve Swanson, just walking through this like charred remains. And I was just like, holy crap. It's like when you're involved with it and you're in the thick of it, it's hard to look at like all the consequences and like the real repercussions of that. Like, you know, did this action push them in a better direction? Did it scare them? Did it, did it help the movement in any capacity on old growth logging? There's lots of questions, but I don't think at the time I was asking those questions too much. A federal judge must determine whether the fires qualify for something called the terrorism enhancement. If the judge rules that Daniel's fires were terrorism, 
Daniel could be sent to a new, ultra-restrictive prison that was set up after 9-11 to house terrorists. In the media and in the courtroom, the question is debated. Eco-terrorism. Terrorist acts by radical groups. Eco-terrorists. Eco-terrorism. Environmental terrorists. People need to question, like, this buzzword and how it's being used and how it's, like, just become the new communist. It's become the new, you know, it's like the boogeyman. It's a boogeyman word. It's like... It's not a boogeyman. It's real. Because remember when I told you that they're going to lock you down because of climate change? <laughs> you think this is all happenstance? Instead, this time, eco-terrorism isn't so bad. Let's watch it progress through the years. You ready? This is how your past can tell you your future quite easily if you're paying attention. That's the problem. No one pays attention. And so this is how water-powered cars that obviously look of that era can go undetected and use their niobium-infused <laughs> exteriors to disappear, right? Because nobody pays attention. Now we go to Australia. This is 2012. News now and Tasmania's Premier Lara Giddings is standing by allegations that environmentalists have engaged in tree spiking. The comments have outraged conservation groups who are calling for an apology and fear the comments will encourage vigilantism. The opposition says the Premier's words are evidence of a growing divide between Labor and the Greens. For conservationists, these were words of war spoken in the same breath as the Premier's call for peace. Where members of the forest industry can go to work and not be frightened that they might lose their life because of a tree spike. That's what we're talking about here. This is serious business that we're talking about here. The Premier linked tree spiking with environmentalists fighting for their cause. And in fact, I've, um, I've seen some. I have seen some and I believe there's been complaints made to police because of it. Well, Premier, where did you see them? Who had them? And why didn't you make that public at the time? So pay attention. Yes, it looks terrible after harvest. Kind of like the way your fucking farm work looks when you cut the wheat. You cut the wheat and then you plant some more. You grow some more. You cut the wheat. That's what they do with trees. This is why they're all done in sections. We harvest them because we use them. This is renewable not all in one. There are regulations. They're not stupid. If you cut down all your fucking trees, then you have no tree left. You have no business. So again, for those saying, oh, this is, do you not have a table that you, that, that you're, that you have your food on a chair that you sit on? How is it not sustainable? If the lumberjacks clear an acre today, they plant an acre today too. No further information has been provided by the Premier today, but in a statement she stood by her comments. It's understood a bolt was found in a log being processed at Tar Ann's Veneer Mill on Thursday during a tour by the Premier. Workplace standards will visit the mill in Hewenville tomorrow to investigate. Some metal has been found in one of the logs that went through the mill last week. That's a serious health and safety issue, no matter what the cause or origin of it. While the Premier yesterday said tree spiking by environmentalists had been a threat to workers for years, the union says it hasn't heard of it happening since the 1970s. 
the Hill and Valley Environment Centre is committed to uh, non-violence and we have never engaged in tree spiking. Conservation groups want the Premier to apologise amid fears her words will promote vigilantism. It will encourage people to take the law into their own hands and I'm certain that as a result of this, uh, innocent people are now under threat. There are also claims the Labor-Green Alliance is under threat. It begs the question, why is Mr McKim in her cabinet when they're clearly at odds over this forest issue and there's a massive divide in government? Kim Booth says Ms Gidding's words won't affect how Parliament operates, but they do raise questions about her capacity as leader. The Premier is calling for calm. Fiona Blackwood, ABC News. So that was 2012. So tree spikes are to destroy equipment. They can actually be projectiles on others. And some of them are explosive tree spikes too, uh, just so you understand. Uh, these are intended to cause harm to the lumberjacks, okay, to the lumberjacks. So let's see. Let's go. We have 2018. We should go to – there's two – from the same one, right? Let me see. I just want to make sure that I have it perfectly done because I need to show you how it's all going to unfold for you. Okay, so we go to January 2018 first. Hold on, let's do that. Here we go. Wondering, is it right to use the word, word terrorism here? Terrorism means to instill terror or fear in people. Uh, I mean, blowing up Twin Towers is terrorism and shooting people in Charlie Hebdo is terrorism and blowing up London Metro is terrorism. But eco-activists targeting machinery, really? Terrorists? You know, that's a, you know, you're getting into semantics. But I would say, yes, it is. It's an eco-terrorism. You don't say terror. You say eco-terrorism. And the reason it's that, whether they're blowing up an animal rights lab or torching an SUVs in a parking lot, uh, or, you know, it goes even further. When I was in the United States Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, I was one of the researchers. We actually held a hearing. It's actually right before I got there with one of the animal rights, former uh, Animal Liberation Front uh, leaders, uh, Dr. Jerry Vlasic, who actually openly said for every scientist experimenting on animals that they can kill, they can save untold amounts of animals. So they're perfectly willing. The leaders, this is one of the former leaders of ALF and other environmental groups, of radical eco-terror groups openly calling for killing scientists experimenting on animals because they will save animals' lives and the scientists' lives are expendable because you're only talking a few scientists and many countless of animals that would be saved. So this is threatening people. When, when a logging protester puts the spikes in a tree and, a, and a, someone comes by to chainsaw it and the chainsaw breaks when it hits the spike. There's been at least several reported instances of people being massively injured and disfigured. So there, people do get hurt. It is a form of terror. It terrifies the people in the industry doing it. And she was not impressed. She needed to hear, no, it's not. Well, let's continue because there's more. Just so that you can see how your past was telling you exactly what your future will hold. Yeah, if you're only paying attention, of course, because it seems like nobody's paying attention. Here we go to February of 2018. Let's listen to this. Under the Trump administration, the federal government is cracking down on eco-terrorism and being followed closely by the states. That's led to more environmental activists feeling the legal sting of consequences for tampering with the nation's fossil fuel infrastructure. Trace Gallagher is digging into the story for us tonight. Joins us live. Hey, Trace. 
Hi, Shannon. In an ongoing effort to stop construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline, in October 2016, five environmental activists broke into pipeline facilities in four states and shut down the valves, temporarily halting about 15 percent of U.S. oil consumption. The so-called valve turners gave themselves up and proudly confessed saying they were trying to preserve life as we know it. Now, one of those activists, 53-year-old Michael Foster, has been given three years in prison. Here's Foster right before the sentence was handed down. Watch this. As long as the law prefers to protect that corporate property, and as long as we keep using the product coming through it, our rights to life and liberty are in danger. Today, the liberal Huffington Post described Michael Foster as a mild-mannered mental health counselor trying to avert climate disaster. Prosecutors see it differently, painting Foster and his cohorts, who have yet to be tried, as terrorists, saying that violence and vandalism are crimes, even if it's done under the cloak of environmentalism. They also point out just because nobody was injured or killed doesn't mean it couldn't have happened. Federal regulators have warned that suddenly shutting down a pipeline can, quote, have significant consequences such as death, injury and economic and environmental harm. 84 members of Congress, including four Democrats, have taken it a step further, sending a letter to Attorney General Jeff Sessions asking if pipeline saboteurs can be prosecuted as terrorists. So far, the DOJ has not responded, but there are also efforts on the state level to crack down on eco-terrorism. So while environmental activists vow to up the fight, Authorities are working to up the penalties. And separately, we should note there's a new video game where players use a mythical Native American Thunderbird to damage or destroy oil and gas machinery. Not surprisingly, the game is not sitting well with supporters of the oil and gas industry. Shannon. Hmm, very interesting development. All right, Trace, thank you very much. Interesting development. Wait, there's more. Because... They've been telling you everything. President Trump mitigated the majority of it. And this is why we're having this conversation today, because it's quite fascinating. Here we go to August 2018. In Oregon and Washington, on the run for more than a decade, is now behind bars in Portland. He's 50-year-old Joseph Dibby of Seattle, and he was found in Cuba and brought back to Oregon yesterday. Let's switch now to our Lisa Vela, who has all the new details. Lisa? Well, Dibby is one of the remaining two fugitives out of 11 wanted by the FBI for the agency, says is at least 25 domestic terrorism criminal acts causing almost $50 million in damage, part of an eco-terrorism group known as The Family, connected to the Earth and Animal Liberation Fronts. Almost a dozen members now serving time behind bars already. Today in court, Dibby pleaded not guilty to three counts involving arson. He's accused of taking part in burning down a meatpacking plant in Redmond, Oregon in 1997. He's also facing arson charges in California and Washington. As you can see, the car said ELF, right? ELF because they gave you another name, Elf. California and Washington. Now, the FBI has spent more than a decade tracking down members of what it calls a domestic terrorism cell with a 60-count indictment against all of them. One of the biggest uh, um, collection of this kind of extremist activity in the uh, history of the United States. FBI is still working to find Josephine Sunshine Overraker, who they say was also part of the eco-terrorism group. There's a reward of up to $50,000 for her arrest. Neil, 
The FBI says Dibby was traveling the world over the past 12 years as they were trying to catch him. They were finally able to get Cuban authorities when they found out he was there to hold him before he was about to board a plane to Russia. They brought him back to Oregon yesterday. Now he's behind bars. Back to you. Lisa, thank you. Actually, it was the Russians that told us that he was in Cuba and that he was going there. And, you know, if they want to find all these guys, they just need to talk to Sean Ben. <laughs> I'm just saying. And also we have some breaking news. A jury has found an FBI agent guilty. <laughs> That's what we got and came after that. They found an FBI agent guilty. Now, for those of you that don't know what tree spiking is, I found a, a really nice short, concise video that's like cartoonish that um, explains what tree spiking is. I just have to find, there we go. Tree spiking involves hammering a metal rod, nail, or other material into a tree trunk, either inserting it at the base of the trunk, where a logger might be expected to cut into the tree, or higher up where it would affect the sawmill later processing the wood. It is a tactic used to discourage logging, either by creating a man trap which may injure or kill lumberjacks who attempt to cut down the tree, or to damage the sawmill equipment later processing the wood. Furthermore, the presence of the spike reduces the commercial value of the wood by causing discoloration, thereby reducing the economic viability of logging in the long term, while not threatening the life of the tree. It is believed that tree spiking originated in timber logging labor disputes in the Pacific Northwest of the United States in the late 19th century. It came to prominence as a contentious tactic within unconventional environmentalist circles during the 1980s, after it was advocated by Earth First, co-founder Dave Foreman in his book Echo Defense. In the book, he discusses how to do it and how to avoid risks to the activist and the logger. One injury possibly from tree spiking occurred in the United States in 1987. California mill worker George Alexander was seriously injured when the bandsaw he was operating was shattered by either an old nail or a tree spike. This led many progressive Earth First groups to denounce tree spiking. Other activists were led to either reject this form of sabotage entirely, or take some precautions, such as putting warning signs in the area where the trees are being spiked. Tree spiking is condemned by opponents of eco-terrorism, who claim it is potentially dangerous to loggers or mill workers, although only this one injury possibly resulting from tree spiking has been widely reported. So I, I let that little robot go. You should get used to it. Now, I'm going to tell you that the insane Democrats have realized that they fucked up, that they joined a group of people because they're the same, right? It's one party. There's no two parties. They give you the illusion that there's two parties. So you think you have a choice, you know, then you're more obedient. So I think this is where they've realized that it's just gone a little bit too far. Um, here's a preliminary report out of Montana. What is Montana doing? And a woman chosen by President Biden to head the U.S. Bureau of Land Management is being asked by Republican senators, including Steve Daines of Montana, to withdraw her nomination. But the White House says it's standing by its choice of Tracy Stone Manning 
and she's also responded in writing to questions raised by GOP senators. Senator Daines and other Republican members of the Senate Energy Committee asked the White House on Wednesday to withdraw Stone Manning's nomination to lead the BLM, which manages 245 million acres of federal land. They said she'd made false and misleading statements about her involvement in a 1989 tree spiking incident in a national forest in Idaho. They also released a letter from a former Forest Service investigator who said Stone Manning was part of the group that planned the spiking and that she didn't cooperate with prosecutors until facing possible charges. Stone Manning admits to sending a letter to the Forest Service in 1989 notifying it of the tree spiking, but in her written responses, she says she did so only because she feared the people who spiked the trees would not send the letter and that loggers could get hurt if they unknowingly sawed into the spiked trees. After getting immunity from prosecution, she testified against the tree spikers at a 1993 federal trial where two of them were convicted. She also said she had no involvement in the spiking in any way. The White House says it stands by Stone Manning's statements, as well as her nomination. Allegations, I have 10 allegations have been made against Ms. Stan, Ms. Manning, and we have done deep investigations and in all those. And I'm happy to share that. I think pretty much everybody's made up their mind, but I'm happy to share that because uh, we truly don't believe the way it's been presented is actually the facts. That's the difference. And we have that, and we can show you that if you care to see that, rather than me rebutting every time. We'd be happy to share. Well, Mr. Well, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I, I, I think we ought to have that, Joe, actually. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Whatever you all want to do, I'm happy to we do We got it. the record where she lied under oath to this committee. How can you turn we that on have, its head? We don't have Okay. You can't. You tell me where you see that she lied. She said, were, were you investigating? Did you participate in any way? She wrote the letter. She admits she wrote the letter. And she said, no, that is a lie. It's a falsehood. Let me just, let me just read the facts to you, okay? What you're saying is Ms. Stone Manning lied to the committee when she said she was not aware that she was being investigated and was not a target of the grand jury investigation. Now, and Ms. Stone Manning was aware that she was being investigated in 1989. This is basically from Michael Merkley, what you're speaking of. Michael Merkley, who was no, I'm speaking of the doctor. Okay, that the grand jury sent Ms. Stone Manning a target letter, which meant she was going to be indicted. That's what Michael Merkley said. Here's the facts. Mr. Merkley claimed that Ms. Stone Manning was a target of the grand jury investigation in 1989 is directly contradicted by his own sworn testimony at the trial. He was asked if the investigation in uh, 1989 had identified possibly anyone as a subject in this matter. He replied, no. Basically, the investi investigation became inactive after I exhausted all of the leads that were developed. All the leads that were developed. His claim that Mr. Manning was a target of the grand jury investigation in 1993 is contradicted by George Bretzamer, Bretzameter the former assistant U.S. attorney who prosecuted the case. The prosecutor said, told Politico, that she was not a target of the investigation. That was in 1993. Merkley's claim that Ms. Stone Manning actively participated in playing the tree spiking is further contradicted by Mr. Blount, who said, was she heavily involved in the planning? Did she go put a nail in a tree or anything? Absolutely not. So I'm just saying, we're just reading the facts as we have them. Did she write the letter? She no. did not write the letter. She typed the letter. Oh, she typed. She letter. didn't write. She it. typed she, it. She, she didn't write it. She typed States it. Forest Service. The answer to that is yes. The letter she was did. mailed. Okay. She mailed but it. She, you're you're saying that that was her that's words. A participa she that's a participation in a conspiracy. Black and white. And she says, no, she never participated. Who else would like to speak on? Well, first, Mr. Ma Mr. Chairman, let me just make a rebuttal to, about what the, you're saying that the lead investigator contradicted himself. The claim uh, that he contradicted himself in his court testimony is blatantly false. There's a, 
a Washington State newspaper, the Spokesman Review, even issued a correction after buying the recent Department of Interior's false claim of a contradiction. The, the newspaper went on, and this is that they said, the original version of the story incorrectly described Michael Merkley's 1993. And I think it's very important to read the letter and to understand that her one overt act was to warn people that the trees were spiked. And she didn't write the letter, Senator Rich. Uh, she was part of a terrorist group, the leader that wrote the letter that got immunity for flipping on everyone else that went to jail. Hmm? It's signed George Hayduke. She typed the letter and sent it. But the first sentence is, this letter is being sent to notify you that the post office sale in Idaho has been spiked heavily. And it talks about um, these sales were marked so that no workers would be injured and so that you, I'll leave the term out, know that they are spiked. So the, the one thing that we know that she did was to type a letter that was a warning to prevent the kind of harm that you all are concerned about. And I am too. I was just yeah, I mean, she, he didn't like murder her. He just wrote and actually typed the letter you know, talking about that. He was just watching. He, you know, he, he wasn't, nope. He just typed the letter of fucking other people's property, typed the letter for fucking federal property. She was part of a terrorist group. I don't give a shit if she typed it telepathically, sent ink to manifest out of fucking nowhere and write that she's part of a terrorist group. And her, what? She fucked up federal property, right? And then told the lumberjacks, hey, don't go and, you know, be careful. There's spikes. So because she told them to be careful so they don't get hurt, even though she fucked up private property conducting acts of eco-terrorism, it should be okay because she, she just typed the letter. It's a heinous act for sure. But it's her, her act provided a warning to avoid the kind of harm that you are uh, uh, suggesting is part of. Uh, Senator Cortez Masto. <laughs> Senator King. <laughs> Let me tell you something. How can they say this with a straight face? Like their family should be embarrassed. You're supporting a terrorist period. Yeah. It's kind of like the way, you know, clone lives matter. Hussein let Osama bin Laden's driver slash bodyguard go because, you know, he didn't mean to kill people. He was just the bodyguard. The tree spiking. So I'm, I'm trying to find where she, uh, there's all these talk about whether she was a target of an investigation. Um, we get into defining what's a target and what's an investigation. And if you're called before a grand jury, are you a target or are you simply called as a witness? But the one, the one piece of clear evidence we have is this letter, which, which was sent expl explicitly as a warning so that someone would not... She was part of an eco-terrorist group. She wrote a letter and didn't put her name on it. You think someone's going to go spike things and put their name on it? Instead, she supposedly typed the letter and put the dude that she flipped on name on it. Stop it. She was part of the terrorist group, right? And the story. That's the way it is. You're
groom babies. You know, once they're in there, they're in there. You can't run and be appointed by a president. You can't do shit like that. If you were ever named part of any terrorist group. Not get hurt. So that no workers would be injured. That was the purpose of the letter. That's the language of the letter. So that would be, uh, 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 and I do think. That letter is calling responsibility. Kind of like, hey, dude straps himself with a shit ton of C4, blows himself up, and someone types a fucking letter to say, hey, uh, might not want to go to that building because, you know, we're about to mess it up and there's going to be a suicide bombing. And, you know, you find the person that typed the letter to take responsibility for the terrorist act, and yet it was a warning. Uh, Clearly, a serious incident. But I do think that the past almost 40 years also is relevant um, in, in terms of, of, of this person's uh, ability to administer uh, this agency. So uh, to me, the... Wait, 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 wait. The past 30, 30, somewhat 40 years mean that, you know, it doesn't mean that she can't now, you know, do what the duties of the office. It's like... Kavanaugh had a bitch say she doesn't remember when or where, but she exactly remembers what happened 50 years ago. Yet this bitch gets a free pass from being part of a terrorist group and part of an investigation that she lied about? No. The, the one concrete piece of evidence we have uh, flies in the okay. face of the allegation that she was committing an act or conspiring to commit an act that would injure people. If you're trying to injure people, you you, you don't warn them. You're, you, the, the whole purpose here was to try to keep the trees from being cut and to prevent. That's bullshit because almost every single terrorist group that's about to blow something up in Saudi Arabia, in Israel, in Palestine, in uh, Jordan, in Syria, in Lebanon, in anywhere in the fucking world, if they're going to blow something up, right? They usually send a warning letter and then they blow shit up without a lot of people in there because they don't want to be painted so ugly. So that's bullshit. And injuries to people. Mr. Chairman. That's what the letter says. Senator Rich. Oh, Senator Daines, I'm sorry. Just, uh, and and Senator King, I have the uttermost respect for you. You know that we work together. (laughs) I I just think it's uh, it's worth noting um, that that letter was signed at George Hayduke. Right. Who's George Hayduke? That's the pen name of a prolific, anonymous author of prank books. Um, In fact, we don't know for certain, because we could maybe ask somebody to give us a definitive answer, but it's believed to be based on the character George Washington Hayduke III. It's created by Edward Abbey in the 1975 book The Monkey Wrench Gang in the 1990 book Hayduke. So if I sign my my name, if I send a letter saying, hey, Cuyahoga County GOP, we're removing every single one of you and we're just going to take over right now. Signed ALF, right? Um, that means I didn't write it, right? Because it says ALF and I'm not ALF. So she signed it, George Hayduke. And uh, to suggest that somehow you, uh, you are writing this letter here to protect people, is uh, I mean, really, it's it's a terrorist threat because it, it frightens people. You know, of course, you read the rest of the letter um, and with the profanity in it. Uh, it's pretty chilling. 
But it'd be like well, saying I'm calling in a bomb. A bomb. Hold on, I can put. The I can first put, sentence of the letter is this letter is being sent to notify you, and then it says the sales remarks so that no workers would be injured. They cut him off. He's like, it's like calling in a bomb threat. Hello, yes, 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 yes. Say it, say it. And so that you know that they are being spiked. I mean, that. Yeah. But, but, but Angus, Senator King, if if I call, if somebody calls into a school and says there's a bomb, uh, as a bomb threat, that that's to frighten people. Let me clarify. That, let, that, that letter is right a bomb and you call and warn the school there's Senator, a bomb, you save lives. Let me just say, of course, Ms. Stump was working with eco-terrorists. She wrote the letters. What's being alleged. And, and you also go to jail for that. Ms. Stone Manning did not write the letter. She retyped the letter that Blount gave her. Blount testified, and he's one of the guys that went to, went to prison, right? He's one of the guys that went to prison. He testified that his girlfriend, Guinevere Lilliburn, wrote the letter. When asked, why did she do it as opposed to you? Blount replied, because I asked her to. And Mr. Chimmers, it's Ms. Littleburn disputed Blount's account. She testified that Blount had told her that he had typed a letter and he gave it to Tracy Stone to mail. She said that it was her impression that Blount had used her typewriter, typed the original letter afterward. So they had them all, they had her flip, right? Listen, they're supporting a terrorist. Listen, they're supporting a terrorist. But anyway, she did not. It was proven and sworn in court and found that she had no way. I mean, no uh, involvement in writing a letter. She well, did type the letter. Mr. Chairman, why did she use a rented typewriter then? Just ask, answer that. Why would she rent a typewriter? And it was actually Genevieve that came forward in 1993 that exposed the entire conspiracy. And that's when they made the plea deal with Miss Stone Manning. Miss Stone Manning admitted to retyping the letter that Blount gave to her. She said she corrected some spelling errors and took out some of the profanity, but otherwise retyped it pretty much word for word. And that's what was found and investigated. Mr. Chairman. Yes, sir. Mr. With all due Senator Rich. With all due respect to the chair and to Senator. The Democrats are supporting a terrorist. Pay attention. Both of whom I have incredible appreciation and respect for. If you went into a court of law and said just what you said, that, well, she was told to type this letter and she sent it in. So she is a hero or she or even she's not involved in this conspiracy to a legal degree. They'd laugh you out of court. She, this was part of part of a legal conspiracy to violate federal law of spiking trees and attempt to kill people. Senator, she could have been prosecuted for perjury. Yeah, she and wasn't. And she made it plea deal. No, she no, was, she, she was snitch. not immune. She was not immune from perjury. She was not immune from being prosecuted for perjury. That's true. But she would have been had she not agreed. Well, right. Whoa, it's like crazy. It's super crazy. So crazy that even even Lisa Markowski is like, what the fuck is going on, dude? This is we can't have this happen. Right. This, even Murkowski came out and said, what the I mean, I, I have missed uh, what some have described as fireworks or as I came in, uh, Senator Marshall referred to it as a skunk fight. We don't have skunks in Alaska, so I'm not really quite sure how skunks fight, but I'm sure it's uh, it's not pretty. And um, it's been unfortunate that uh, that at the committee we've been um, engaged in in this back and forth. But the fact of the matter is, I as I see it, is is that the actions of the nominee um, some years ago, uh, with with regards to uh, her engagement um, with this act of of tree spiking eco terrorism, um, is is really really disturbing 
And if we're not all disturbed by that, um, I think we need to, to look just clear-eyed at it. I, I'm not going to to rehash or, or relitigate uh, what what colleagues have gone back and, and forth on uh, today. Instead, I'm going to to speak to what perhaps some would say, well, that's more parochial to Alaska because I've got some significant concerns with the way that this nominee has handled responses to my questions, specifically as they relate to public land orders in, in Alaska. Um, but it goes to, I think, her broader view of, of um, understanding of multiple use, um, uh, the, the, the charge that we have for, for multiple use application on, on our public lands. Um, I think that she has has demonstrated, at least through through the conversations that I've had with her and what I've seen with, I believe, the actions that she has taken, that when it comes to the multiple use mandate of the Bureau of Land and, and Management and, and all that it administers, that she doesn't have the balanced approach that I am looking for in a nominee that that would have this portfolio. It is really very, very clear. It's very clear. The Bureau is, is there to manage, but also to balance the use of both renewable and non-renewable resources on our public lands. And again, I... So here she is saying, well, I'm not going to talk about the fact that she's a terrorist, right? I used to talk about the fact that, you know, I, I don't think that she's cut out for this. And for that reason, I'm not going to support her for that reason, right? A Washington Post article 30 years ago, 1990, called Tree Spiking an Eco-Terrorist Tactic. The article went on to label it as a type of guerrilla warfare, saying, quote, this is the Washington Post, tree spikes are among the most vicious of the strategies. While the tree is still in the forest, a spike is driven in at an angle so the head is hidden in the bark. It can shatter a chainsaw on impact, sending pieces of razor-sharp steel flying. Can spike trees pose a physical danger to firefighters and to loggers and to other forestry workers? Yes, Senator, I believe they could. So if someone were made aware of a tree spiking incident on a national forest, should that person immediately alert the police or the Forest Service? Yes, Senator. Okay. So... Tracy Stone Manning is President Biden's nominee for the Bureau of Land Management. She was presented with this very choice and decided not to do the right thing and go to the authorities. Uh, today's front page story in the Washington Times that I'm going to submit for the record, tree spiking case haunts nominee for public lands. This states Tracy Stone Manning could have told law enforcement after she learned that a friend had driven railroad spikes into trees to stop a timber sale in Idaho's Clearwater National Forest. But she didn't. The article goes on. Instead, Ms. Stone Manning rented a typewriter and rewrote the anonymous letter to the U.S. Forest Service describing the locations of the booby-trapped trees. She corrected spelling errors, removed some profanity. At her friend's request, she mailed the letter. So, uh, Mr. Chairman, I have a unanimous consent that is that um, the Washington Times is not, the, because the Washington Times is not the only outlet to cover this shocking story of a President Biden nominee. I ask unanimous consent to enter the following articles into the record. 
from the Wall Street Journal under the headline of Biden nominee's radical past from the Daily Caller. Biden Bureau of Land Management nominee Tracy Stone Manning was involved in eco-terrorism case, resulted in college roommate's conviction, prison sentence, court records show. Story from the Associated Press, Biden's nominee linked to 1989 sabotage draws Republican ire, and from Fox News, Biden land management nominee collaborated with eco-terrorists, traded testimony for immunity. Um, Mr. Chairman, it is my belief that she is clearly disqualified to be the director of the Bureau of Land Management, which manages almost 65 million acres of federal forests. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. And that is boom, boom. Wait, there's more. You want to know about this cookie? Here's some more that you wouldn't believe. Take a listen to this. Just read two quick statements. Here's one statement, Tracy Stone Manning. On her questionnaire, when asked, have you ever been investigated, arrested, or charged by any federal, state, or local law enforcement authority for the violation of any federal, state, or local law, regulation, or ordinance other than a minor offense? She responded, no. I have never been arrested or charged, and to my knowledge, have never been the target of such an investigation. Now, it's hard to process so anyone can say she's never been the target of investigation when she did a plea agreement to get out of being charged. And now suddenly it is a, well, she wasn't charged. Well, of course she wasn't charged. She met with her lawyers to do a plea agreement to turn evidence on someone else so she wouldn't be charged. So this is either very careful wordsmithing, but it seems to be pretty clear what actually is occurring here. The minimum standard to be able to meet with our committees is honesty. I asked this committee, when the director of Bureau of Land Management sits in this hearing in the future days, and we have a hearing where there's someone from the logging industry sitting next to her, which would be common for our committee to do, to talk about forestry management, what are we gonna do? What exactly does that look like? To have someone that is BLM sitting next to someone from the logging industry or paper industry, as we will do in the future, what does that look like? Based on some of the writings that she has done, what does that look like for those that do cattle grazing? Because she has written pretty extensively that cattle grazing damages BLM lands and they should be charged a whole lot more than what they're actually charged to actually do cattle grazing. What does it look like just in basic perspectives? For me, there was as we went through some of the things that she's written, I ran across several things that surprised me. Honestly, the honesty of all this and what we can talk about with the tree spiking is one issue. This is an image of one of the things that she had written earlier. She had recommended an advertising campaign to encourage people to have fewer children to be able to save the environment. And what she had designed and recommended was a photo of a child with the simple question, can you find the environmental hazard in this photo? To make it clear, below it, she writes, that's right, the cute baby. She wrote this, a population tread lighter still treads. The origin of our abuses is us. If there were fewer of us, we would have less impact. We must consume less, and more importantly, we must breed fewer consuming humans. Now, maybe that's an opinion shared by a lot of people on this dais. I don't share that opinion, that that child is the environmental hazard. I just don't philosophically agree with this candidate. I don't think this is the right direction 
for us to be able to go as a committee. I do think honesty is important, but I do think the concept of children or the problem that we have in our world is something I do not agree with. So no, I cannot support this nominee. Damn Langford, you left stupid fucking John Hoven's stupid face right next to them. All right, listen, did you want to see how they're going to lock you down for climate change? There you go. Because right now, the way things are, there's going to be some eco-terrorist act. Either they're going to burn the shit out of everything or spike everything or poison water in, I don't know, conservative communities because they leak some information that uh, this neighborhood um, doesn't you know, vaccinate at any rate. So they should all die because they're a threat and it's called eco-terrorism. But is it really terrorism, you know, if, uh, if they're doing it for the greater good? I mean, is it really terrorism because he drove away in the vehicle after the assassinations, dodge, 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 the blowups, dodge, dodge, no, this is it. You wanted to see how it is. Look at what they're doing. They're putting this person up and trying to elevate an actual terrorist that didn't go to jail because she flipped on the people with her and then became an informant, so she had some protection. Oops, did I say that? (laughs) So that's the way it's going to come down on you. All right. On that note, I'll see you guys. Those of you that are going to be on stereo in about 20 minutes, I'll be on with Bergie. Other than that, God bless. I'll see you tomorrow. One, two, three, four. Oh